Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are on your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Well, welcome again to Hope Brooklyn. Last week, we started a series as we started off our Lent season. So if you're not aware, today's the second day of Lent. Um, or second Sunday of Lent. Um, at some point, I'm going to get confused what number we're at, so you guys could just shout it out. But we're on the second Sunday of Lent, and some of us might have already entered into a season of fasting, of observing Lent. And the, the reminder here is that we're, we're leading up to something. Um, oftentimes, um, the church calendar kind of just creeps up on us, especially Easter this year. Uh, we were looking at the calendar last year, and I'm like, Easter is oddly like just it's very close to the start of the year, um, but Easter is coming, Good Friday is coming, but we also want to make sure that we are entering the season of eager expectation um, as we're ready to celebrate the resurrection. We also spend life um, understanding the darkness and the length and the death of Jesus leading up to that victory. And so we started a series last week on discipleship and what it means to follow Jesus learning to follow Jesus, because I think many of us here, um, just by looking around, might, you know, we probably have some sort of experience or idea of following Jesus, or the idea of Jesus. Uh, maybe for some of us, this is a very new idea. Uh, maybe we've never made that commitment before. Maybe we never even thought about that. But I want to be able to unpack the joys, the challenges, and ultimately the victory of what it looks like to follow Jesus, because that's what we're doing here. Um, we're not just get gathered here today to just be another church in the corner, running another program, just to have our own organization. Um, friendships are great, but it's, it's, it's so much more than all of that. Um, and I want to make sure that we as a church, uh, myself included, that we're on the right track, that we're pursuing the same thing and the right thing, which is Jesus. And so last week we talked about um, Jesus is calling out the first disciples, follow me. And in Jewish tradition, the rabbis, they invited students into this lifelong journey of following them. And discipleship, easily, simply put, is, is about growing in imitation as the, uh, as the teacher. As a student, we're growing in likeness, in character, not just in knowledge, but we're trying to just absorb everything. Um, maybe at some point in our lives that you know, we, we had an eager desire for imitation. We wanted to be like someone. We wanted to model our, our personalities, our character, our, the way we talk, um, the way that we project ourselves, or the way that we think. A lot of great ideologies out there, and especially today in, in, in where we are with um, accessibility to technology, to information, it's easy to be this imitation. And I'm gonna be honest, at some point in New York City, every pastor wanted to preach like Tim Keller. Um, everyone just re soaked up all the books, listened to all the sermons. Um, it was almost like copy and paste when you went to different churches. Um, it, it was like there's was, there was a, there a blueprint and formula on how to preach. And everyone tried to do that imitation. But unfortunately, just, we just can't be Tim Keller. <laughs> and so um, there was a sad reality for me when I came to terms with that. I was like, I'm just going to be me. Um, but it, he had such a great influence in the city, in the churches. Um, unfortunately, he has passed away, but um, in his death, you realized and recognized the great influence that he had, not just for the city, but for Christianity all globally. And so at some point in our lives, we, we, we work towards this imitation. 
And we're, we're constantly being discipled by someone or something. Something is shaping who we are. And my encouragement is, why not allow that to be Jesus? And so as his call says, follow me, and I love that because Jesus didn't simply say, watch me. He didn't simply say, just stay over there and look at me accomplish all these great things. If anything, these followers of Jesus, as you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these stories of the disciples, they held Jesus back. Jesus was hoping that they would be commissioned out performing these same miracles, and they're like, oh, it's, it's not working, Jesus. It's not working in the same effect as you would. But Jesus had this commitment that as he called his disciples to follow him, it was to live with him, to observe him, to grow in his likeness, to grow in character. And so today, um, I'm going to actually be talking about one of my favorite topics, which is living a life of intimacy. What does it look like to be just shoulder to shoulder, heart to heart with Jesus? Because for some of us, we may like the idea of Jesus and the image of Jesus, but we're not close enough to feel the effect of it. We might be observing it from afar, like many of these people witnessing these miracles, because Jesus wasn't doing this simply in private. He was doing it in private and in public. Crowds were following him. And as all this is going on, not every single one who observed the miracles became followers of Jesus. Just because you saw Jesus raising the dead didn't mean, oh, that's the man I'm going to follow. If anything, the majority led him to his death. But here, as we follow a life of intimacy, it's, we, we, we easily jump to the part where Jesus is our best friend, he's our father, this intimate relationship. But we skip this part where I love in the Lord's Prayer, it was his heavenly father. It's two words that kind of are, are, are a small, intimate scale of a father, but a supreme being and a godly being in heavenly. So how is it possible that we can have an intimate, intimate relationship with Jesus? It shouldn't be possible. It shouldn't be possible that someone at Jesus' caliber of not just influence, but of power, authority, and the creator having that type of desire to be intimate with his creation. And so we're going to be in John 10, 1 through 14 today. And we're going to see a couple of ways of how Jesus made it possible for us to enter into this intimate relationship with him. And the first is, as we talked about last week, as he called his disciples, he says, follow me. Come and follow me. It's an invitation that Jesus brings in. And then we look at John 10, 1 through, um, 1 through 14. It says, very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. And so I'm going to pause there for a second because we see this imagery that Jesus is teaching these Pharisees. He's call, he, he calls out the sheep by name, one by one. This is intimacy. He knows his flock. And in, in return, the sheep know, knows his voice. There's the intimacy. There's a calling. And this is, in, uh, this is um, we're going to look at Ezekiel 34 in a, in a moment. Um, 
but before uh, after we finish reading this text, but in Ezekiel 34, we're going to see that this imagery of a shepherd is not just a new imagery that Jesus brings out in the New Testament, but it's something that is a theme that God has just commonly shown to the people of Israel and to those who are bad shepherds. Because the reality is not everyone is a good shepherd. There's only one good shepherd. There's only one that can call by call them by name, and we know his voice. So it continues on to say, Jesus says, but they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they'll run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and, let, and have it to the full. See, there's, there's, a, there, there's something that Jesus is showing what intimacy with him looks like. is to have a life, that they may have life and have it to the fullness. In 11, Jesus now makes one of the uh, seven I am statements in John. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. So we see in verse 11 and 12 that the way that it has been made possible for us to have intimacy with the good shepherd is because the shepherd has laid down his life. That access was not available for us. That intimacy was not available for us. And this is a thing that is very perplexing to many people and many religions. How can we have this direct intimacy with the Father? That means your God's not holy enough. That means your God is too small that he even cares to have intimacy with you. And I love that kind of polarizing understanding of the Heavenly Father. That absolutely right. He shouldn't. Someone at the level of God for who he is and what he has done, that he, has, he spoke and creation came into existence. Why would that God desire to have a relationship with us? Why would he desire to have intimacy with us? Why would he even care of the pending doom that awaits? But Jesus explains, and these Pharisees just don't get it. He says, I am the good shepherd. I'm going to make a way. I'm going to open this gate by laying down my life so that anyone who desires to follow Jesus has an intimate relationship with him. And verse 14 continues to say, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 15 is such a telling desire for God that we know Jesus as intimately as Jesus knows his Father in heaven. It's an access that he opens up. It's something that he has come to earth to sacrifice his life, to be part and amongst his creation, to be incarnate with us, to exist with us, so that we can have this direct access to God. 16 says, I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. 
The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to give it up again, take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. I know this is a longer text in John 10, but it's, it's a beautiful imagery that Jesus draws out about being the good shepherd. He tends to his flock. He cares. And, he, and we, we know the good shepherd by his voice. And the unfortunate truth is when we look at Ezekiel 34, 1 through 10, God speaks to his prophet and he rebukes all these terrible shepherds. God has continually created roles in, in the Old Testament for the people of Israel, of kings, of prophets. He's, he's commissioned people to shepherd his people, to care for his flock. And yet, they have all failed. So God gives a warning. He says, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of their flock? You eat the curds, clothes, and clothe yourselves with the wool and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back to the strays of, or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because they were no shepherd. There was no shepherd. And, they were, and when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every hill. They were scattered over the whole earth, and no one searched and looked for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, because my flock lacks a shepherd, and so it has been plundered, and so it has become food for all the wild animals. And because my shepherds did not search for my flock, but cared for themselves rather than for my flock. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue the flock from their mouths, and, I'll no longer, and it will no longer be food for them. God gives a very clear warning to all the religious leaders and the people that have just worn out their flock. Um, this passage is a very popular passage for me because in my role, I, I remind myself of this. <laughs> what is my role and capacity as a pastor? What is the warning that God has given to his people that he, that's my daughter's, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Ellie. <laughs> so, that God has commissioned people time and time again to shepherd and care for his flock. But they've ultimately failed. They've entered roles in selfish gain. They've covered themselves. They've, they've kind of enlarged their life at the cost and the expense of their flock. And God gives a clear warning to them because he tells them, that this is my, they are my sheep. I care for them. I see them. I see them hurting. I see them in, in, in disarray. I see them tired and weary. And yet the people that have been sent time and time again have failed. And we see in the New Testament as Jesus talking to these Pharisees, these religious leaders, these, the Pharisees that were supposed to take care 
of the people of God. They have just built heavier, heavier rules and legalism and just bounded them up and worn them down. And so Jesus enters the scene and says, I am the good shepherd. Hear my voice. Not the voices of the world that continually does clamor for attention and for gain and for value and for influence. It says, don't look at the shepherds of this world that tell us how to live our lives, but yet not model what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. Don't follow the shepherds of this world that lead us into destruction and pain. Don't just follow culture because it's prominent and it's, it's common. Because the beauty of Ezekiel seems really harsh, but I love that how much Jesus cares for his flock. And actually, the end of Ezekiel 34, he, Jesus, God says, you are my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the sovereign Lord. There's a promise that God makes in the Old Testament saying, a good shepherd will come. My son will come and you will know his voice because he's going to be calling out to you. He knows us by name. He knows us where we, he knows where we are. He knows the, light, the, the place in life we are if we feel tired and weary, lost and confused, desperate and alone. Jesus is the good shepherd. And here is where the beauty of the intimacy of Jesus comes in. Because when we live not just simply in close, pro- close proximity of Jesus, but if Jesus becomes the center focus of our life, our true desire and, re- and the one that we pursue a relationship with. Christine Kane, um, she's an author, speaker. Um, her and her husband started this organization called A21 that fights um, human trafficking. She says, we were never created to settle for mere religion. Jesus did not die so that we could have a religious belief system, but rather a life-giving relationship with our Father. Jesus says that my desire is that you may have life, and life and life in fullness. And intimacy with Jesus brings that out. Because intimacy of Jesus provides a few things. Intimacy of Jesus produces some beautiful things for us that gives us freedom and liberty. One of the things it produces is is a peace of the spirit. Apostle Paul in Philippians says that I have a peace that transcends all understanding. That when we're intimate with Jesus, we know that we are in a place of safety, of comfort, of security. We're in the hands of our good shepherd. A shepherd that we don't need to question, can I really follow you? And some of you may be sitting here asking, questioning that of me. Can I really follow you? And that's totally fine. Be in that place, discern, ask questions. But the beauty of Jesus is that because he is the good shepherd, we can be rest assured that he will lay down his life for us. We find peace. In the storms of life, as the disciples are on the boat, calling out to Jesus for safety, that he calms those storms in a miraculous, powerful way. He is the one that could deliver us from the the chaos, and bring order into our lives. He is the peace. And intimacy of Jesus, as we grow in intimacy with him, as we grow in relationship with him, that peace becomes more and more secured. We get to experience more of that each and every day. See, a lot of times when we think that we're growing in relationship and maturity with Jesus means that we just sing louder during worship or we pray longer. 
No, or, or that we just volunteer more. But internally, there's so many things that begin to shape and change. That as we spend time with Jesus, our hearts begin to become configured. We get to experience this type of peace and joy that is unshakable and unbroken. That when we have intimacy with Jesus, we recognize the fruit of the Spirit. We, rec- we, begin, to, uh, we begin to grow in kindness and love and patience. And we be- we're able to recognize that in others as well. We become sensitive to the Spirit as we begin to spend time with Jesus and we listen to his voice, we get, begin to know his direction. And I think every one of us has been there at some point. Maybe we're in that season right now. We're in between careers, jobs, calling, purpose. We don't know what the next step is. There's a lot of confusion, worry, anxiety. The beautiful thing about Jesus is that when we begin to spend time listening to him, his voice cuts through all of that noise, all that clamor, all of that cloudiness. It becomes very crystal clear that we know the voice of Jesus. And if, if you look in the book of Acts, I, I love the boldness of these apostles that when they go around, when they pray for healing, they don't, they don't wonder. And I, I do this all the time, like, God, may you heal this person. But if you don't, I, I totally understand. You know, I, I get it. Like, can just, you know, it's, it's up to you. It's up to you if you want to heal this person. But these apostles walked around with this boldness saying, no, no, walk. Can you imagine how embarrassing that is if you just walk up to someone that's been paralyzed and be like, walk. And they attempt to do so and it doesn't work. Like, maybe next time, right? Like, no, they, just, they walked around with authority and power because they already knew the discerning voice of Jesus. They knew the voice of the Spirit says, go up to this person and tell them to walk because I will heal. Man, that is power. That is certainty. Being sensitive to his voice doesn't mean that, God, just tell me what I'm supposed to do tomorrow. Maybe some of us are very indecisive. I'm I'm kind of the other extreme. I just make decisions without thinking. So, like, if, if I'm caught up, if a waiter catches me off guard, I'll just order whatever just pops up and I'll have regrets as I'm eating. Right? I know some people, you know, kind of take time making decisions, looking at photos of the food, all that stuff. I'm just like, I'm just going to go with it and see what happens. I just, I'd rather make a decision than no decision. <laughs> but when we understand the sensitivity to the spirit, it's not just about making a decision for today, tomorrow, for a career. It's about understanding purpose. It's, not, it's more than just asking God, what is my next job? What is my next career path? It's God, who are you calling me to? What are you calling me to? What is my deeper purpose? And if you really want to test the intimacy with God, it's not testing his voice. It's not saying, God, today, let me see if this works. We can test the intimacy with Jesus by asking ourselves, how do we pray? And what do we pray about? Do we simply pray about future decisions, or wishes. God, I really hope this happens tomorrow. I have an interview tomorrow. I need this. I need this job. God, I'm going, I'm, I'm, I'm meeting this person for the first time. I hope it's not awkward. See, when we grow in intimacy of Jesus, our prayers begin to evolve. It becomes vulnerable. It becomes honest. 
And it's, it's a weird thing to hide things from God. We always play that Adam and Eve game, right? When God comes into the garden and asks, where are you? This is God asking, where are you? And he's, he, in reality, he's asking that to us. And we're always afraid trying to hide from God. It doesn't work. But when we understand intimacy and relationship and we'll, we feel safe and we feel peace and hope and we understand sensitivity to his voice, we're able to be honest about our prayers. We're saying, God, we could come to God and saying, God, I just feel absolutely broken today. I don't know if I have the will to wake up tomorrow morning. I am in deep sorrow and anger for what this person has done to me. God, I can't let go of this comment that was made to me by my parents. God, I don't want to forgive this person. I don't. I know I'm supposed to, but I don't. God, I'm so scared and worried for what my future looks like. Can we be honest with God in our prayers? Can we be vulnerable in our prayers? See, that's the test of the intimacy with God. I don't know, maybe some of us here were oversharers. Like we meet someone for the first time and our whole life just gets unpacked. Or our childhood traumas. Like when I was seven, this happened to me. And then when I was nine, I, I'm, I'm kind of like, don't even tell them where we live, what neighborhood. <laughs> right? Keep our information. Like I shred everything. Right? <laughs> but sometimes we realize that as we build towards relationship, we feel more safe. We feel safe. We feel more comfortable. We feel more honest. Especially when we find out that somebody has something that, it, that, that we share a common interest, common experience. Um, one of the beautiful things about New York is like, where are you from? So, oh, I'm from this little town out here. Really? I was one mile away. I'm like, there's no way. <laughs> right? There's no way. <laughs> right? And you know, some, you, know, you know the experience of like, your friends with someone's friend that knows this friend. Like, it's just somehow everything connects. And then once that connection's made, it's just like the floodgates open up. <laughs> just from that one piece of information. We just, we, we just shared a zip code somewhere out of New York City. But see, as we grow in intimacy with Jesus, as we begin to know him, and not just know him in knowledge, in head knowledge, but know who he is to us, know that he is the good shepherd, Know that he calls us out, calls us, that he calls us to him. What we pray about and how we pray begins to transform. It becomes renewed. And here's the tricky thing about intimacy. We get tricked into this idea that just because we know a lot about Jesus, that we're intimate with him. I know a lot of useless sports facts. Like, really useless um, that in no other scenario outside of fantasy sports would it ever matter. I could tell you a player's biography, what college they went to, what they averaged in college, how successful they are. I could try to project their career path, right? I could tell you their teammates. Um, I could tell you family information. I could tell you all these weird things that I know about sports. It, it's like, it's like this one gift that I have. I wish it was used for something else, but it's just, it just retains. Every information, every number that pops up, it just gets stuck there. But that does not mean that I have any type of relationship with any of them. 
Like if I walked up to an athlete one day, be like, hey, your parents' names are, I mean, that's really creepy, but like if I even called out to them, started yelling out information to them, they're not going to be like, oh, my man. And I'm like, get security on this guy. <laughs> and a lot of times we trick ourselves just because we know so much about Jesus and church and the programs of church that we have intimacy with God, but we don't. Charles Stanley, a pastor, he says, you can, be the mo- you can be at the most incredible church and lack intimacy. Isn't that scary? That we can be at- in the most incredible, amazing, like heartfelt scenario of a conference with, of global Christians and yet lack intimacy. It's, it's, it's actually a very scary thought that sometimes we can pass up moments like this by just gathering here with intimacy with Jesus. Paris, um, read it, he's a missionary. He says, most Christians do not have fellowship with God. They have fellowship with each other about God. I love our community. I love our tables. I love the intimacy and friendships that have been created here. But what I hope for even more than that is with intimacy with Jesus. And that's kind of the, the complex thing about being a church in the city. Uh, there's a big emptiness and desire for friendship and intimacy. And the church kind of does a good patchwork in filling in some of those voids. But oftentimes we get stuck in that one gear and we forget to move on and to center that around the intimacy of Jesus. Because at the end of the day, it's the intimacy of Jesus that drives the force for that community. It's the intimacy of Jesus that makes our gathering, our social gathering, different than any other social gatherings happening outside. It's the, it's the intimacy and the centering around Jesus that makes our, our home groups different than just regular dinner parties. It's the intimacy of Jesus that drives the compelling force of why we gather around mission, about love, and it redefines what culture says community should look like. Because at the end of the day, there are things that will disrupt spiritual intimacy. First up is pride. Oftentimes what interferes with our intimacy of Jesus is ourselves. It's, it's, pride, it's a spiritual pride like the Pharisees. I mean, these Pharisees knew the law way more than any of Jesus' disciples. I don't know if you ever felt like that and being in a room. Like, even as a pastor, I enter into settings. I'm like, that person knows way more about Jesus than I do. I'm, I, I actually attempt to be in those scenarios. <laughs> I want to be in those circles. These Pharisees knew everything about the law, but yet they couldn't recognize Jesus when he was face-to-face with them. How could you miss the mark? I mean, Jesus is literally saying, I am him. I am the Messiah. They're like, no, 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 we read about the Messiah. You ain't the Messiah. How ironic that their spiritual pride blinded them to actually receiving the Messiah. And we can get caught up in that as well. Just because we know how church operates, 
we, we, we put all our energy into, into cultivating a program that can be engaging and fun within here and then we miss the point of what we're supposed to be doing once we leave this place. We forget what it looks like to, to care and extend kindness and grace to our neighbors and our friends, to our family, of what it means to share the gospel, not just sitting in the pews and passing the peace here, but passing the peace in our apartments, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces. The pride gets in the way. Our, our, our desires, our selfish desires of not letting go the affections and these bad shepherds but we just want a piece of the good shepherd. We want to be able to observe the good shepherd, kind of have him in eye view, but we want to be led by all these different areas and arenas of our life. Secondly, what disrupts spiritual intimacy? Activity. Activity. I've seen it. I've been part of it. I'm guilty of it. I've created it. Sometimes by doing more, we feel like we're close to Jesus. Um, if you guys ever, some of you guys are incredible hosts, um, amazing chefs. Um, for those of you who do cook, I don't really cook. I cook once in a while, um, and it's only if the grill is available. Um, but in the, in, the, in the act of cooking, we forget to actually have conversations with the guests that we invite. <laughs> right? We cook, we set the table, we eat for a few minutes, and then we go clean. <laughs> And the guests that, that we have invited because we want to spend intimate time with, we forget. We get caught up in the activity. And that happens in church too. And that happens in our spiritual lives. We try to, we try to create activity to counter some of the, the lack of intimacy that we have with Jesus. We feel the emptiness. We feel the void. We don't sense the good shepherd. So we feel like if we work ourselves out of it, we can get into it. But notice how Jesus calls out the sheep. He says, there's no other way into the sheep pen. You can't climb in some other way. He says, there's only one way. The one who enters by the gate. The one who enters through the shepherd. That, it's, it's that flock. That, it's those people that get to enjoy the green pastures that God promises in Ezekiel. And here's the scripture to prove that point. Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Jesus is pointing out that activity does not equate relationship and intimacy. Just because we fight for the right things, because we voice and protest about the right things, because we, we go into action about certain things in the name of Jesus, doesn't necessarily mean that we know Jesus. And so for me, my hope in my personal life and for us as a church is that we begin to cultivate this life that bears fruit. Because we're not, not just simply because we're in close proximity with Jesus, because we're pursuing this life of intimacy with him. By the way that we pray, with honesty, truth, and confession. By the way that we observe his word. Because the reality is, if we only take 
scripture and the truth from Sundays and maybe some, you know, cool clippets on Instagram and socials, that cannot be our form of relationship and discipleship. If we, want to, if we want to enter into friendship with anyone, we can't just take a couple of their sound bites once a week. It takes time. It takes time to cultivate friendships. It takes time to cultivate relationships, to get to know them intimately. Um, there's a running joke that for guys, you could be friends for decades and not know a single thing about each other. Um, and I can attest to that. I have a friend, we've been friends for 32 years. Um, and his wife is best friends of my wife. Um, and we won't even know big news about life changes from one another. Christy will come to me and say, hey, did you know that your friend did this? I'm like, oh, no. It's like, weren't, did you guys hang out for like seven hours yesterday? Like, yeah. What do you guys talk about? Sports. <laughs> right? Like, there's, there, there's, no, there's no content. There's no meat. And I realized it's, just, it's a simple friendship. It's been the same friendship for 32 years. We do the same things that we were kids that we do now, right? And the same way we, sometimes our relationship with Jesus can look like that. We could spend countless hours in church and Christian activity. But until we begin to really hear his word, listen to his voice, and lean into his spirit, we'll just know a lot of fun facts about him. We might be able to even teach courses on him. We might be able to even teach courses on how church is done, but does not equate intimacy with Jesus. My hope and desire is that every single one of us here begins to live out of a life of fullness and just this overflowing well of the joy of knowing Jesus. And I'm going to invite the community ushers and worship team up. Because the amazing and beautiful thing is that when we begin to understand and to know Jesus' voice intimately, that intimacy produces such an abundant life. It's a life that cannot be delivered through all these false shepherds, all these bad shepherds, all these shepherds that demand, demand, and demand of us. Versus when we look at Jesus, he just gave and gave and gave. And so today, he's inviting us. He's not forcing you <laughs> into his flock. He's calling us today. Calling us by name. Knowing where we are today. The struggles, the loneliness, the hardships, the confusion. The anxiety, the unrest. And he says, just, I'm inviting you into a life with me. That as you begin to know my voice, you begin to know an abundant life. As you begin to know my will and know my spirit, you begin to live a life of power. And I know we don't talk about power enough. And I'm not talking about power of platform and influence. But I'm talking about a power of freedom, of liberty. Can you imagine living our life being free from anger? I think my wife and I, we almost lost it a thousand times coming here. Just car almost hitting us, honking at us. We're like, we're all right, we're moving. And I was like, and we're both joking around, like we're going to church with so much peace. But can you imagine living a life where you're free from anger, 
Not just false smiling and happiness. I'm talking about genuine freedom from anger. That no matter what someone says or does to anything to us, that we get to live with peace and we get to pass the peace instead of anger. Imagine living with power and authority that when people challenge our identity and our value, we are unshaken because we know that our life came at a cost. That somebody has already made a purchase through their life for us. That we're that valuable. Imagine living a life of power and authority and freedom. That we're free from judgment. That we're free from the vices and addictions in this world and that we can live with peace. That we don't need to wake up every morning with the anxiety of, will I fail or can I make it through the next few hours? Imagine God giving us that, that power and peace from the moment we wake up, saying these vices, these opinions of others. Imagine having power to experience the freedom from past trauma. Imagine experiencing the freedom from the things that held us from our childhood, our family of origin. And now we get to live today creating a new generation, creating a new life of walking with Jesus, of transformation and restoration. And for us as a church, I don't want to just experience a few tweaks and an added program here or there or an event or there. I want us to experience power that we are a church that is commissioned and empowered by the Holy Spirit to bring healing and the good news to the city. That's what comes out of the life of intimacy of Jesus because he's not just a father or friend, but he is our heavenly father, the God of all creation. Delight in that. Let's accept that invitation today.